Well, hello there, dear listener. The Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. It's me, Trevor, aka the Iron Fist. With me, Joe, the tech guy. How are you going, Joe? Evening, all. So, if you're in the chat room at any point, say hello and chat away. We'll try and get to your comments. And we're just going to rattle through the events of the week and look at some other stuff. What's on the agenda? Witch hunts, Murdoch and Crikey, long COVID, stage three tax cuts, student loan forgiveness, and privatisation of public assets. So that's the sort of stuff that's on the agenda. Got a few clips to show you. John's in the chat room. Hello, John. John and I are in the middle of a Facebook Messenger debate over small nuclear reactors where John is still a fan and he feels that I have straw-manned and cherry-picked. the good name. The good, yes. I've straw-manned and cherry-picked the good name of small nuclear reactors. So we're in the midst of debating that. But I don't think we're going to do that as a topic tonight. So, well, first topic, witch hunts, Joe. I mean, mm. what's wrong with a good old-fashioned witch hunt, I ask you? Burn the witch. Yeah. I, I mean, I keep thinking of the Monty Python skit where they've dressed up that poor woman with a fake nose and, as, a, as a witch and they want to burn her. And She turned guy, me into a newt. That's I got it. better. That's it. I keep thinking of it with a witch hunt. You know, and witch hunts are bad, but Joe... What if there really are some witches out there, as in some bad people? Mm-hmm. It's probably time to hunt them down, I would have thought. <laughs> Maybe we can get them to eat um, ergot. Yes, be some way of showing them. Well, mm. appearing before an ICAC or something is what needs to be done. So, so both uh, Trump and Morrison in particular are claiming that they're the victims of a witch hunt. And... So, yeah, I'm working on a, on a hypothesis that the problem in our society is that we haven't had enough witch hunts. And so there's the conflicting arguments with both of these characters. Um, on the one hand, we've got their supporters who are saying, oh, why pick on these guys? It's over and done with. This is just unnecessary, vindictive legal action against people because you don't like them and they're not of your tribe. And the other competing narrative is people saying there were serious problems that went on here in the USA, the capital riots, and in Australia, you know, signing up to five ministries in secret. And these things just can't be swept under the carpet and should be examined. And, you know, if you could just declare, oh, it's a witch hunt, you would never go back and re-examine poor behaviour, Joe. And... I think one of our problems in our society of late is that there hasn't been enough shaming of people for poor behaviour and poor decisions. Well, certainly there's not been enough shame agreed to by the people. Yes. Yes. So, I mean, in the, par- in the past, if you got caught doing something, most politicians had the good grace to, to look ashamed about being caught doing the wrong thing. Yes. Uh, and fell on their own sword, whereas recently it's just been, oh, well, no, no, it never happened. I pretend yeah. it didn't happen and bluster your way through. Yeah. Or I haven't broken the black letter of the law. It hmm. wasn't, strictly speaking, illegal 
it was just a convention and therefore you know, doesn't matter. Leave me alone. Nothing. It, it it doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong to these people. It's just you know, am I legally liable? And if not, let's move on. So, so yeah, it's a it's the confliction, the conflicting thing there. So, incidentally, Joe, I thought I'd better look it up. A witch hunt metaphorically means an investigation that is usually conducted with much publicity supposedly to uncover subversive activity, disloyalty and so on, but with the real purpose of intimidating political opponents. So Morrison, for example, would say, well, this is all about intimidating political opponents, but I like to think that it's about uncovering subversive activity myself. That's where the emphasis is. I I would agree. I mean, I don't see holding a minister... Holding a prime minister to account for their actions they did in secret, yeah, or or even holding a former president to account for stealing documents and then keeping them in unsafe locations. Indeed. And from what I hear, the classified documents were hidden inside unclassified documents. Right, they had been taken from their original folders. And mixed in with papers of other sorts. So it looks like there was a deliberate attempt to hide classified documents. Yeah, I think the expression was they'd been unfolded, I think. was Possibly. A word that was I'd never heard of before. And, and someone yeah. was saying, oh, yeah, it was his blackmail trove. Yes. These, these were all things that he was hoping to threaten to, to disgrace people by saying, look, look, you did this. I'm going to make this public if... You don't do whatever I tell you to. Yep. Yeah. And certainly that there was a Macron file certainly reeks of him getting some ammunition of some sort, but he might want to have some payback. Mm. Being so, yeah. So anyway, Trump on the confidential documents, he says it's a witch hunt. Conservatives on the Morrison ministries, they say that's a witch hunt. Conservatives on the robo-debt inquiry, they say that's a witch hunt. And Well, they started with... Pink bats, didn't they? Yes, that's right. But, you know, when it comes to the robo-debt, quite possibly, Joe, it's a witch hunt of a witch hunt because that Alan Tudge, who was the, the, one of the ministers involved, said at one point, we'll find you, we'll track you down, and you will have to repay those debts and you may end up in prison. So perhaps he was conducting a witch hunt and now there's a witch hunt of his witch hunt. It's all getting very meta. So, yeah, it's conflicting. There's all sorts of different people. In the chat room, by the way, everyone's going off already. Good on you, Alison, Bronwyn, Ito, Anne, Anne, and and Tanya, I think. T. Watkins would be Tanya, probably. Yes, Tanya. Yeah, keep talking in there. We'll try and get to you if you can. And what was I going to say? Waleed Ali, are you a fan, Joe? Somebody posted a link to him and Christopher Hitchens on Q&A many years ago. Oh, what happened? Oh, Waleed was being his usual evasive self about what Islam believed. Right. Because Christopher was saying, so does Islam say that homosexuality is fine? And he's going, oh, well, you know, most Muslims. And he's saying, no, 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 it's not what most Muslims believe. What does Islam say? Yes. Because he was calling Islam out. And I think uh, Christianity has been. Mm. And and was saying, basically, you're just, you're not answering the question. He's trying to hold Waleed to account. Yes. Yeah, I could imagine Hitchens uh, nailing him. So, well, Ali, in a quarterly essay in 2010, wrote, established institutions are to be cherished and preserved. 
But in the last week or so, after Morrison announced, after it was announced about what Morrison was doing with the ministries, Wally Daly is saying, why is the Labor kicking him while he's down? And so... When else would you kick him? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, Wally Daly, he's off as a conservative and questioning why are they doing this attack? So from a guy who previously wrote established institutions are to be cherished and preserved and who claims to be a conservative. So sounds like he's revealing his tribalism there. So is it important? Well, there was a guy, Raph Epstein, and now I'm just trying Wally to Wally wife was a member of parliament for Labor. Or is that somebody know. else over in Perth? I don't know. don't know who his wife is, but... Raph Epstein, I think he's an ABC reporter of some sort and I think of all the commentary I've heard, he probably said it best. So I'll play a bit of this clip from him and we'll see what he says. Can I, can I say something about whether or not the inquiry is justified? Yeah, because I want to get into a lot of debate about whether it's a witch hunt, you know, it's going to change anything, but it's not going to ensure one way or another that happens. do we need to do this? I think people have overlooked the significance of the Solicitor General's opinion. Stephen Dodge, you see, is the black letter of black letter lawyers. He's one of the very few people in this country who actually practices, practices constitutional law. He has to get up in front of the High Court and prosecute this stuff. Getting him to use an adjective or an adverb is like being blood from a stone. He says it fundamentally undermines, I won't react, but it's arms. It fundamentally undermines the principles of responsible government, the functioning of responsible government. And the relationship between the ministry and the public. Oh, like a point there. This, this is unfair. And the government was surprised. The government was surprised that it was that it's huge. It's a huge compulsion to do something. And to say, for people who are, who tap themselves as conservatives, to say that, oh, you're back poor. It's just the convention. If you went back to the constitutional convention before federation and said, oh, no, it's fine. This future prime minister, you didn't break the law. He just trashed all of the convention that you all rely on. Yeah, I think it put it pretty well. That was a little bit low. Sorry about the volume on that, but it's important. And I think it's entirely justified. And sure, Labor would be rubbing their hands together with a bit of glee, with a bit of payback. But it is an important thing that needs to be done, particularly as we're looking at potentially some sort of Republican debate down the track. So issues to do with our constitution and the role of the Governor-General, I think it's a worthwhile exercise, even if it does work in nicely with Labor's desire to to keep him to kick him while he's down. So, so there was that. Okay, so that's witch hunts. Now, it came out, Fran Bailey has come out in the news. So she was the former tourism minister, and she's the one who basically ordered that Morrison be sacked from his tourism job. And for years, people were asking, why'd you do that? What actually went on? And there was this silence about, about what had happened, what his misdemeanours were in that role. And it was all very secretive. And so she has declined since 2006 the many requests to explain on the record what happened until now. So she's so infuriated with the recent disclosures about Morrison secretly appointing himself to multiple ministries that she has agreed to speak and she's made a profound point, according to this article from John Fain in The Age. Morrison was removed from Tourism Australia for the same type of conduct he displayed in the multi-minister scandal, quote, 
What has changed my mind is that all of those characteristics that make up Scott Morrison, the secrecy, the supreme belief that only he can do a job, the lack of consultation with those closest to him, those characteristics were evident 16 years ago, and perhaps we're seeing the end result of those now. End quote. Well, why didn't you come out and tell everybody back then? But I want to know. Maybe she thought he wasn't going to go anywhere. She criticises. She's criticising his secrecy, a mm. matter which she kept secret herself. Just, you know, for people who want to come out and say, good on you, Fran Bailey, for revealing, I just say, Bit bad later. on you, Fran Bailey, for keeping it secret. I don't know that anything would have been done, but at least you could have done the honourable thing and say, this guy is a secretive narcissist. Don't appoint him to any position of power, least of all Prime Minister. So, Well, I'm they didn't. Of... It was God who did it, don't you remember? Yes, that's right. And a few people have made the same sort of criticism that I have just made and they've been admonished by some on the left saying, oh, it was a woman who got him sacked and why is a woman being blamed for Morrison getting through all this? And it's just nothing to do with her gender. It's just you knew he was a secretive character and you kept it secret from us that he was secretive. So don't try and claim too much kudos for it is all I'm saying. John in the chat room says, too little, too late. She should pull her head back in again. <laughs> uh, I, I think she did it for political expediency, didn't she? Yeah. She wasn't going to upset her party. Yeah, that's right. While he was powerful, mm -hmm. let him go. And now that he's got no friends, everyone can kick him while he's down. Yeah. Right. I mentioned, was it last week, <coughs> about Crikey and Murdoch? I don't know if I actually said it, but how, how strongly I said it, but it seemed unlikely that Murdoch would actually sue Crikey because it makes no sense. It will be unleashing exposure of communication by the Murdoch family as to what they did and did not do. And so it just seemed to be obvious that this was going to potentially open a Pandora's box and surely after all of these defamation cases in recent times where the plaintiff has ended up regretting starting the action, you would have thought that he would just let it go. But no, he actually did commence the action against Crikey. So we'll see where that one goes. This is going to be a very interesting story as it pans out, Joe. Like, Yeah, absolutely. Oh, look, I, I, I think whatever discovery is granted is going to be very interesting. Hmm. Well. I mean, it's relevant to produce all material that in, that might lead to the conclusion that there was some agreement, mm -hmm. some conspiracy, or just mere assistance for Trump in what he was doing or covering up what he was doing. It's just, it seems madness, but he's doing it, so we'll, we'll see how that one pans out. That's going to be worth many stories over the time as it goes through. And I'm so, sure January 6th inquiry. Yeah. Just going back to Morrison with the secrecy stuff, Watley, hello, Watley, says, I don't think any of the commentary is taking his religious fanaticism into account as his actions go. And Bronwyn says, agree, Watley, when you believe you've been chosen by God, anything is justifiable. 
there is certainly a messiah complex operating in the Scott Morrison mind. Did, did I mention there have been allegations that the only ministries he hadn't appointed himself to were the ones that were occupied by evangelicals? Is that true? I don't know. I've not looked, yeah. but somebody had said it would be interesting if it was. Yeah, I don't know. So it seemed to me at first blush it was ones where the minister had a fair amount of personal decision-making responsibility under what the relevant act, more so right. than some of the other ministries, whether to approve a development, whether to approve an immigration visa for a Sri Lankan family, those sorts of decision-making powers that maybe some of the other ministries didn't have. So it seemed to me ones where there were a, a high degree of personal power for the minister. And I just think Morrison didn't like the idea of anyone having more power than him. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, back to uh, Crikey and this lawsuit. So they're doing crowdfunding. I think they revealed they've got something like 12 journalists work for Crikey and it came out the figures for their income seemed fairly modest. It's quite a small organisation. So if you haven't already and you like the idea of supporting them, then just get a subscription and private media, I believe. What's that? Private media is the holding company. Okay. For Crikey. For Crikey. Right. Yeah. So anyway, support them because they will need assistance. And also what we had here was comments by Malcolm Turnbull about the Murdochs. So if, well, actually, before I get into that, Joe Biden says Rupert Murdoch is the most dangerous man in the world. I mean, if you want to start suing somebody for defamation, maybe Rupert Murdoch could have started with Joe Biden because his propaganda network is one of the most destructive forces in the United States. So that's what Joe Biden had to say about Rupert Murdoch. I don't think you can sue a sitting president, can you? No, I don't think you can either. Well, of course, it's going to be difficult. Yeah. That's why Trump wants to get re-elected. Okay, what did Malcolm Turnbull say? Let's find out what he said about this whole thing. The, the role of Fox News, which of course belongs to Rupert Murdoch, in the whole January 6th attempted coup by Donald Trump is a matter of enormous public interest. The reality is the big lie that fueled that coup, namely that Trump had won the 2020 election and Biden had stolen it, that big lie was propagated and amplified and promoted by Fox News. Mm. January 6 could not have happened without the toxic influence of Fox News. I mean, Rupert Murdoch has done more damage to American democracy than any other individual alive today, and he's done it through Fox News. And I can, can I tell you, that may sound a bit controversial on the radio this morning. Go to Washington, you would struggle. Not just the US, the mm. UK and Australia as well, I'd say. Mm. Mm. Probably this Lachlan is, is crazier than Rupert. He's not as smart, but he's crazier. So at one point I was holding out hope that when Rupert would eventually, if he's not a vampire and will actually die at some point, maybe Lachlan's so crazy that the whole rock show will just fall into the ground fairly swiftly because of his mistakes. Like the one he's possibly doing. Just an evil, malignant 
force in our community <laughs> responsible for a lot of stuff. And this is a part, you know, this is one of my big arguments with Paul Twelfth Man over the years was Paul did not accept the propaganda effectiveness of the Murdoch Empire and did not accept that journalists were cowed into complying with whatever the Murdoch doctrine was. Editorial direction. Yeah. And actually, so we've got into a, I didn't enter into an argument. I just, a friend of mine I played squash with, his sister was a sports journalist for, for Murdoch Papers. And I think I was at a wedding of some sort where she was and I started entering into this discussion and she was trying to say that there was no um, direction on her in her activities. And I said, well, first of all, you're a sports journalist and secondly, you know, you don't have to be told what to do. People figure it out. So, and, and they leave. You only hire journalists who align to your views. Correct. It's all, the, it, it, you know, do you accept the Noam Chomsky theory of manufacturing consent? And I think it's a pretty compelling argument. And, yeah, so it used to frustrate me with Paul Twelfth Man that he, he would rarely accept that argument. I, I think... Also, just the whole science denial of fogs, but other Murdoch rags, mm. which is, you know, buying into the find the one dissenting voice and amplify it. Yes. Provided that voice is one that somehow is in line with your own yeah, yeah, absolutely. personal yeah, needs of some sort. Okay. I got my fourth COVID shot this morning. Previous three have been Pfizer. Went for Moderna this time, just to mix it up. Feeling okay, no ill effects. But yeah, long COVID. You've had my, your fourth. No, no, I only had my third. I was, I got nagged by my gastroenterologist to get my fourth, and then the kids got COVID. Right. So I, I get the feeling, given that I was in the house with the two of them, and they were both sick for a week each, that I've almost certainly had an exposure. Mm. I probably had it mildly. Yep, yep. So I've got that. But long COVID, Joe. The, I think it was. I'm not sure it was Treasury, I think, has estimated 31,000 Australian workers are calling in sick every day because of the debilitating symptoms of long COVID. Treasury data given to News Corp papers shows 12% of the labour force is staying home sick because of the long-term after-effects of the virus. So, so we should slash wages and make them more keen to get back to work. Because they're just the poorer they are, the more they'll want to work. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So uh, this is, I thought, you know, News Corp, they'd be advocating for such things. My daughter's friend, who's 17, and she was all gung-ho, oh, let's, let's get COVID, let's get it over and done with. And she was sick for a week or whatever. She had to give up her gym membership. Really? She cannot do any form of cardio exercise. And this is presumably a this month or two. Right. Yeah. You do hear these stories. Yeah. Mm. And it's not uncommon. Mm. Mm. Just, just yeah, being out of breath after walking a couple hundred metres. Well, people saying that their thinking is really fuzzy. They're not as mm. alert for as long as they used to be. Yeah. So it's, a it's actually been pointed out that it's not uncommon after any virus. It's just it seems to be because almost all of, or rather large numbers of people have had COVID. We're seeing post-COVID viral fatigue which are around in other viruses, we just don't usually recognise it. Yeah. 
So long COVID, we'll see how that pans out over time. Now let's talk about our new Labor government who have come in and with a lot of goodwill around the place, I think, from the from the media at least and from their own supporters and, you know, the sort of conservative supporters have been, I think, accepted that the Morrison government was so bad it just had to go. So they're sort of standing back and giving these guys half a chance. I... Climate credentials aren't looking real flash so far for this new government. They, they told the world that the climate wars were over, claimed they will take climate change seriously, and they just approved 10 new ocean sites for oil and gas exploration. Just doesn't line up with what people might have been hoping and expecting, and the Greens will be rubbing their hands together, I reckon. With this, it doesn't surprise me. I I thought Labor were as bad. I mean, mm. Palaszczuk has been very much on board with Adani. I I really don't see much of a difference between Labor might be slightly better in terms of pushing for renewables, mm. but yeah, they're still very keen to. I I think there's far too much sponsorship, far too much money in Canberra from the oil and coal lobby. Yeah, and they've only had to show themselves just a little bit more progressive with, mm -hmm. as opposed to the Conservatives. And that's not hard to do. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, approving 10 new ocean sites and you're talking about being serious about this stuff and the more you just read in the paper about... But they weren't their... off of Morrison's electorate and that's the important point. Yeah, okay, yeah. You know, the, the Greenland ice shelf, the droughts in England at the moment... You know, canals that used to, and rivers that used to run and dry. France, <coughs> rivers are dry. One of my English friends was actually saying they're finding more and more bodies as the reservoir levels are dropping. I'm sure. Like, it just seems the Northern Hemisphere is really facing some catastrophic stuff, and we seem to be heading for another wet summer. It's, it's all going to catch up with us, and it just looks like Morrison government isn't serious, and it'll be interesting to see how the public takes it. The Greens... I've just picked up another couple of notches in approval rating, I reckon, as a result of that decision. Yeah. So, Joe, if you were trying to encourage people to pass a future referendum about The Voice, would you be importing a large American basketball player as part of your media camp? I don't know whether he was imported or whether he was over here for something else. Yeah. And... Is it because he is revered by the Aboriginal community? I don't know. It did seem a bit left field. I think the argument from Albanese was, look, we're at the point where we're just trying to raise awareness and we're trying to reach people who may not necessarily read the newspapers or read political sections or whatever, but who would, if they saw Shaq, decide to pay attention to whatever he is here for. So I think that was the rationale, was we've got a message, there's parts of the community we can't reach, and a big American, African-American basketball player will reach that demographic. Could you not have reached it some other way other than importing a large American? Was there nobody in Australia? Was there no Australian Indigenous are you not going to point out that he's a flat earther? 
Is he a flat earther, Jack? Oh, God, yes. He claims that the plane that flew him here didn't, it flew (laughs) flew in a straight line because the earth is flat. Does he? Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like Kyrie Irving. Kyrie. Yeah. I'm surprised he didn't say that we're all paid actors because, you know, the other flat earth conspiracies, Australia is made up and that we're all actors. Yeah. I think he might have been here for other reasons and it's sort of, I don't think they paid him. I think he did it for free. But I just, if I was the Australian Prime Minister, I would just not be using American culture on such a vital Australian issue. It just, to me, rankles with me. And, you know, there are there's some successful Indigenous basketball players like Paddy Mills yeah. or others. Who, I mean, the guy held the flag in the Olympics or whatever. Like, there's, there's all sorts of other people who surely could reach that demographic without a big American who was admittedly a great photo opportunity, just the size of the guy compared to Morrison was, was bound to get photographs, I guess. But, yeah, I, I just think relying on American culture for such an Australian problem, issue... Me, well, and, and, you know, how, how relevant are they as sports people to the average Australian, mm. as opposed to an Indigenous rugby player? Mm. Mm. Anyway, that was that. Kevin says, well, there goes any respect I had for Shaq. And Bronman, why do we need the endorsement of a foreigner? We, we need to work these things out for ourselves. I know it's such an Australian issue to bring in a foreigner with no particular expertise Honestly, that move I wouldn't have done if I was him. Anyway, stage three tax cuts. So while the Conservatives were in power, they proposed some tax cuts and Labor agreed to them at the time as part of the small target strategy. And the tax cuts are not, were not to take effect immediately. They were to take effect at some time in the future, which will be during this term of the parliament. So people are saying, hey, our budget situation isn't looking that flash. And you're supposed to be a Labor government, so maybe you could think about not, you know, you could reverse this decision about the tax cuts. So, well, they said at the time, no, no, it's far too late in the day. Too many people have made financial plans based on this that we can't reverse it. When did they say that? Just in the uh, last few weeks. Around the time of the election. Right. <laughs> people have made commitments based on their tax cut. So we can't, yeah. Yeah. So I yeah. think it was either just before, I, I think it was just yeah. after the election they said, no, no, we're going ahead with them. Um, because they're due to kick in any time and people have yeah. already made plans. Because couples on $200,000 who bought that investment property were doing their spreadsheet out into the next 10 years and had factored in more disposable money, income, because of a, of a tax break that they were going to get. And, and, and you know that landlords are doing it hard at the moment. So, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's an argument. So what are, what are the tax cuts anyway? So... They're going to remove the 37 cents in the dollar tax bracket and they're going to lower the 32.5 cent bracket and they're going to raise the top tax bracket to start at 200,000, where it used to be 180,000. So if you make 50,000 a year, dear listener, 
which is kind of near the median income, not the average, but the median, you're going to save $2.40 per week. But if you make 200000 a year, you're going to save 73 times that. You're going to save $174 a week. So the richest 1% of Australians will get as much money from the Stage 3 tax cuts as the poorest 65% combined. And a Labor government looks like proceeding with this. So... There's two arguments. One is you're a Labor government. You're supposed to be for the working class. You're supposed to be about trying to even out the inequality in our society. And the other argument is, well, you committed to this and you promised people that you would pass these. It was all part of your small target strategy. If you were to go back on that promise, then nobody will ever trust you ever again. And so let's find the two arguments. I've got clips for the first one, which is Rick Morton. I quite like Rick Morton. He writes for the Saturday paper and I hear him on different things. And he's going to give the argument as to why Labor should look at reversing this decision. So we'll play this one. I think this government is better than a poke in the eye with a burnt stick, which uh, incidentally is what the previous government offered, <laughs> which was basically just terrible decisions after terrible decisions. So it's very easy to look like you're doing a competent job. And I think they are doing a competent job. Competent, solid, not spectacular, and in fact, quite disappointing in some areas. And, you know, it's a really low bar that they've cleared. Disappointing in what areas? Uh, well, I think we've got a cost of living crisis and I've, I'll be banging on about this until the day I die. But if you are particularly from the Labor Party uh, or a party or, that cares about, you know, workers and people who are not the top end of town and you've got a cost of living crisis and you get into power and you don't do anything to help the people at the very bottom of that ladder, then why do you exist? I really, I really wonder about that. And I know what they would say, which is that we are trying to be a government that's here for three terms or longer, and you, you can only do good things when you're there for a long time. And I totally get that. But I worry that, you know, people who are starving now can't wait three terms. Mm. And that's, that's the problem. Mm. Common sort of talk is that Labor's got their eye on a decade in power. I think that the Liberals are so crushed that if they play this correctly, they'll be in power for a long time. Um, now, arguing the other way would be Guy Rundle from Crikey. He wrote an article. So I'm going to read some excerpts from it. He says, Labor won't reverse the stage three tax cuts. Taxes by civilization only works in a social democracy. Now, working-class families plot their own life course. Reneging on cuts would be a political killer, says Rundle. Labor would be committing political self-harm of the first order by cancelling or even modifying the stage three cuts. It waved them through when they were brought to Parliament in 2019, which was something that Rundle was arguing in favour of, in order not to get snarled on the issue. Politically, in pursuit of a Labor majority, it was absolutely right to do so. Had it not done so, its opposition to the cuts may well have been the means by which it was held below a full majority. Having lost in 2019, partly due to the franking credits stuff-up, 
it was leaving nothing to chance. The decision and its ramifications indicate where we are all at, what Labor is now and what's possible. Spoiler alert, not much. So, so far, Rundle's saying they had to do it in order to get the majority that they got and not to repeat the franking credits disaster of the shortened election. He goes on, there has been an implicit and explicit call to focus tax policy around collective commitment and the common good. But he says this is nostalgia for the Whitlam era. When we were on the road or trying to be to a social democracy in which individual and family good were bound up with common good. But that possibility is gone. It's been gone for some time. It really only existed for a few decades after World War II and was decisively killed off by Hawke and Keating initiatives. So there was only a brief time uh, post-World War II, according to Rundle, that we had the chance to convert to a more European social democracy and we didn't make it. And now most Australians... Look over a social landscape in which the long journey to self and family life must be managed as an individual. It's a tough terrain to try and say taxes by civilisation. This basically says people aren't going to buy it. The Labor Party should concentrate on taxing corporations. And it goes on essentially saying that Australia doesn't value community and paying taxes for our civilization. It wouldn't have won. It doesn't want it now. We're essentially moved in the American model rather than the European model. We're all about individual freedom and our family, bugger the community. And he couldn't have done the tax cuts. And if he was to do them, people wouldn't appreciate it. So they're not going to do it. That's the sort of guy Rundle theory on it, which is quite depressing, but <laughs> what are, you, uh, what are they I, saying in the chat if, room? Yeah. If you tax corporations rather than individuals, mm. Mm. I think most people would get on board with that, especially yes. the way they're, I think a lot of people are very upset with the offshoring of wealth. Mm. Yes. They'll let you go as hard as you possibly can on these multinationals, mm -hmm. but it's not easy just actually designing the tax to do it, having the, yeah, I mean, it's possible. And and essentially that's what Guy Rundle's saying is forget the tax cuts on personal income, let it go and try and make up for it with corporate tax. So I guess it shows in the recent royalties changes with the coal tax in Queensland where they yep. really bumped up significantly and, you know, a bit of moaning and groaning, of course, from the mining sector, but the average Joe on the street hasn't been hasn't been crying any tears for the miners. So that's a good example, I guess. All right, what do we got here? And also, it's a profits based tax. Hmm. So if if miners are doing it hard, they don't pay any tax. Correct. Yep. So if there's a super profits uh, arising through super high commodity prices, then Mm -hmm. Actually, it's based on price per ton, I think. So yeah. not quite profit, but essentially profit, though, yeah. So, yeah. Right. So we'll see how that pans out, but it's the money at the moment seems to be on labour not doing something, but some people think they might. All right. Did you have a student loan, Joe, when you were in the... I never went to uni. Oh, right. Okay. 
I go. did an apprenticeship. Right. Did you have an apprenticeship loan? <laughs> no. <laughs> right. I, I got paid to study. Not much, but I did get paid. There you go. In the US, the Biden administration has decided to write off some student debts and there's, I think, between ten and 20,000 are the amounts that are being written off. And it's causing a bit of a problem in the sense, not so much oh. people saying we can't afford this, although there's a bit of that. The main argument is I paid my debt yeah, off. Yeah. Why, these people should be paying their debt off as well. It's unfair. Yeah, wasn't it Jordan Peterson who was going, I worked 60-hour weeks in the holidays and 40-hour weeks whilst I was studying and paid my way. I did. I had zero student debt at the end of uni. Why shouldn't other people pay their way, basically? Yes. Yeah. And most of the people who say this actually were in the time when university degrees were either very, very cheap or were mm. free. Yes. So most of the politicians here... Most of the politicians in the US were, you know, not necessarily went through because a lot of them went to Ivy League, but there were community colleges that you mm. could go to for free. Yeah, yeah. And there is a, ma a massive problem in America with people who get a degree, can't get a decent job with it, end up with a debt, and quite a lot of people with a debt around the $10,000 mark that they'll just never pay off, and it's a, a real penalty around their neck. So... So it's interesting where people who, some of the biggest critics are people who essentially had a debt themselves and paid it off and say, well, you can't let these people get off. They've got to learn somehow uh, how to do it. It's a little bit mean-spirited, isn't it? I, I didn't go to the university. I think the problem is we've made university, it, it used to be, you finish secondary school. Mm. Some people went to university if it was relevant to a job. Mm. And we've now said, oh, you needed a degree to do this. You need a degree to do that. And I don't think we do. Mm. Uh, I think we are, we, we've devalued the vocational training, right. apprenticeships. Yes. And we are telling everybody that they need to go to university and they need to borrow large amounts of money to do so. I mm. think we should make, university free and say we're paying for these particular skills that we need these particular trades right if you want to do anything other than that and you know maybe mm. some of them are arts degrees but but i think we we need to cap this and say right it's free for the best students in these areas so you would um, be happy with something that subsidized degrees that led to definite jobs mm -hmm. thinking I'm thinking teaching, engineering, doctor, yep. for example. Yep. Maybe not so much if it was a generalist humanities arts degree which examined English literature, history or something. I, I, is again, it? I think there's some value in that. Mm. But does nursing need to be a degree? Mm. Nursing historically was a vocational trade. I think it's optional these days. I think you can either do it kind of in-house working or through a degree, I think. I think nursing I has two different pathways. Mandatory, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I think it's got two different pathways. I, I think the the problem is we've liberalised the market. Now now tertiary education is a for-profit industry, so they're desperate to get people through their doors. Mm. 
Uh, and I think that's the biggest problem. Yeah. Is it's, it's gone from being, we want to educate these people to, we want to make as much profit by selling them courses that they don't necessarily fit. Yes. We've got KPIs mm-hmm. that measure money yep. and numbers and don't necessarily measure well-rounded individuals. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I, I, years ago, I would have been very much of the view that, you know, it probably should be subsidised for degrees that were leading to a specific job. But as I get older and older, I just think we need – I like the idea of humanities. I think people just learning stuff about history and about philosophy and other things, there's just not enough people doing that stuff. So I think our society is suffering because not enough people have been reading and understanding that stuff and contributing at that level. So we've become quite illiterate, you know, in a philosophy sense. So – and this little podcast, dear listener, is an, an attempt to redress that. So, yeah. So, anyway, that's student debt in America. So, some of the comments I was reading on Twitter was from a Caitlin Burns. She wrote, if you have a problem with the student loan cancellation because you already paid off your loans, just pretend it's a tax cut for the rich that you also never got but mysteriously didn't complain about. <laughs> I like that one. I saw a meme that showed Jesus with the loaves and fishes. And it said something like the people who brought their own lunch should be pissed. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And a headline from The Shovel, Ted Cruz tells students to become a bank if they want their debt forgiven. And this guy, Jim Banks, a Republican politician, said, student loan forgiveness undermines one of our military's greatest recruitment tools at a time of dangerously low enlistments. He actually said it. If we, re- if we wipe off these loans, people won't need to join the military as a matter of necessity. Because that's one of the things about joining the military is they'll pick up your student loan. Yeah. Actually said it. So what are they saying in the chat room? Alison, heck started the year after I got my degree. Yeah. I think Alison, I think six months after mine, six, or maybe I had to pay six months. I can't remember. I was sort of part-time at the end. So, yeah. And John saying that. Rich people tutor their kids and therefore they get better grades. Mm. Is there it's a better cool. way of measuring merit? Yeah. And, well, Joe, is merit something that should be rewarded anyway? Because the meritocracy argument, look back 100 episodes or so, was really making the case that merit's not a good way of uh, rewarding people because it relies on a whole bunch of things beyond people's control. Right. But the, the alternative to that is... Mm bringing mediocre students into courses that they struggle to keep up with. Don't want that either. Mm. No. None of these things are easy, but I think I think it's crazy, particularly in the US, because that's what I tend to read more of, the the level of debt that people are saddled with is just and crippling. You, you cannot bankrupt yourself out of that debt. Yeah, it's one of the few things that's right. Almost any other debt you could claim bankruptcy, but not the student debt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did read that somewhere as well. So, yeah. All right. I did have here on a list some stuff by Caitlin Johnston. I mean, she's such an angry woman. I admire that she maintains the rage as she just continually criticizes the USA. And uh, she just cops it on Twitter from all sorts of people. 
calling her a, a simp for the for the Chinese and for the Russians, but she basically says the U.S. Empire is the biggest bunch of bastards running around this planet by a long shot. So we should be concentrating on criticising them. And while the other guys aren't perfect, they're nowhere near as bad as these guys. And that's where she's going to continue to to focus her efforts. So. I quite like reading her stuff because she's just got a good turn of phrase quite often. And just an example, we, Joe, apparently in the last 24 hours, Biden has asked Congress to approve a $1.1 billion arms sale for Taiwan. That's important. These guys really know how to market. You know, send someone over, Pelosi, stir up more trouble. And and get your market really riled up and then sell them some weapons. Yeah. It's Caitlin Johnson says, anyone else getting deja vu? And and we continue to hook ourselves up with these guys. And Marco Rubio, he had something to say about this stuff. So let me play a clip from him. So I'll play this one. And our job, honestly, the most important job I will have if we get reelected, well, we got to do real things here, okay? But we need to focus the federal government on what matters. I don't, we don't need a military focused on the proper use of pronouns. We need a military focused on blowing up Chinese aircraft carriers. Okay? Yep, we need a military focused on blowing up Chinese aircraft carriers. So, because we're just responsible citizens in the world that everyone should love. Why don't, why don't people love us in America? He's probably asking, so just uh, shameless warmongering by these characters and, mm-hmm. and the propaganda just keeps keeps supporting them. Public assets and the privatisation of public assets. I saw a thing on Twitter, Joe, about electricity bills in the UK are essentially for small businesses five times what they were being, what they were paying before. So... You might have a bakery where your annual electricity bill was something like £10,000. And now that's £50,000 with the incredible price hike in electricity. Businesses all over the place having to shut down. They've just got no capacity to pay the extra electricity charge. I've got friends in the UK who are very concerned that come winter, they're not going to be able to heat to survive. So apparently residential has got a cap, so it's not quite as bad as commercial. Maybe they're paying two and a half, three times what they were paying previously. But the, the sort of cap doesn't apply to commercial. So just a whole bunch of small business faced with this enormous increase in their electricity. And it's not bullshit like they're producing the invoices and the letters that mm-hmm. they're getting from the from the electricity providers, and it spells it out really clearly how much extra they're paying. So many businesses are going to go bust in the UK. I'd, you'd, if you were there, you'd want to get out, Joe. Like, uh, the place is heading for ruin. At what point do you buy your own generator? Yeah, it, well. Get, and and apparently lots of people are buying solar, but right, solar but, in the UK is not exactly up. yeah. I mean, the generator, you've still got to run on diesel, haven't you? I mean, how much is that going to cost? I don't know. Well, twice as much as it used to, but... Okay. But does it still work out that you could... Well, and that's my question. Power your business, yeah. There's got to be a break-even point where it's cheaper to 
to run your own generator than to buy off the grid. Quite possibly. Quite possibly. So, Incidentally, John, in the chat room with our argument about nuclear, if I was in the Northern Hemisphere in Europe or somewhere, I, I might be a supporter of it because it might work out. But here in Australia, we have so much wind, so much solar that it's clearly the case, doing the math in Australia, that we should be on renewables, not considering nuclear at all. But if I was in a rainy, overcast, small European country that couldn't generate solar or wind and had a huge population based on, compared to the landmass, maybe nuclear would work. It would have to be the option there. I don't I, know. I used to live about 40 kilometres from a nuclear power station. Mm. So oh, from, okay. the, from the roof of my parents' house, you could mm-hmm. see Flummerville Power Station mm-hmm. and Capital Hague Nuclear Reprocessing Plant, mm-hmm. which I looked on Google Maps the other day is all pixelated. Right. When you zoom in. Just in case a terrorist wants to do some scouting. But I remember when we got the, the power cable laid across the bit of water between us and them. And, yeah, we used to have hour, two-hour-long breakdowns on a regular basis of power. Mm. And suddenly we were getting cheap French electricity. Yeah. Which was all nuclear. It was great. Yeah. yeah. If you went back, you're probably still getting outages now because of the erosion and the fact that they can't cool the nuclear reactor because of the warm water. But yeah, the well, things we discussed and, the other day. Possibly because after Brexit, the price of the euro has changed. Indeed, yeah. So I've got an article here. I'm going to read a fair bit of Settle In because it's by Yanis Firifakis. And regular listeners would know that he's the only person I only. Only guy I admit to having a bit of a man crush for. So love Giannis Varoufakis. He's such a his delivery when you hear him speak. It's he's got an interesting way of talking and love his ideas. And he's a straight shooter. And yeah, so he's talking about electricity in Europe. So I'm going to talk about that, and then I'm going to swing around to Australia and make it all relevant to the Australian context. So James says, I was going to say that about or horses for courses or about my, my man crush on Giannis. Anyway, Athens. This is Jan's Farkas in Project Syndicate. Athens. The blades of the wind turbines on the mountain range opposite my window are turning especially energetically today. Last night's storm has abated, but high winds continue, contributing extra kilowatts to the electricity grid at precisely zero additional cost or marginal cost in the language of economists. But the people struggling to make ends meet during a dreadful cost of living crisis must pay for these kilowatts as if they were produced at the most expensive liquefied natural gas transported to Greece's shores from Texas. So it's cheap wind power, but the Greeks have to pay as if it was expensive natural gas imported from Texas. He'll explain why. It stems from the delusion that states, meaning governments, can simulate a competitive and efficient electricity market. Because only one electricity cable enters a home or a business, if you left matters to the market, it would lead to a perfect monopoly, an outcome that nobody wants. But governments decided they could simulate a competitive market to replace the public utilities that used to generate and distribute power. 
but uh, Giannis is going to argue that they can't. So the EU obliged its member states, as part of being part of the EU, to privatise the power stations to create new companies which would compete with one another to provide electricity to a new company that owned the grid. And this company, in turn, would lease its cables to another host of companies that would buy the electricity wholesale and compete amongst themselves for the retail business of the homes and firms. Sound familiar? Previously, government owned it and sold it. Now, bunch of power stations competing with each other to supply it to an artificially created entity who then sells it to a bunch of other companies who are competing at the and retail level to sell money. It. By building infrastructure that they don't need right. and then charging interest on that infrastructure. Uh, that's not the argument he makes in this one. We'll get to it. So, yeah, so the theory was competition amongst producers would minimise the wholesale price while competition amongst retailers would, would lead to lower retail prices. So if you are of the competition mindset, competition fixes everything, this seemed to be the ticket. Alas, none of this could be made to work. So part of this is that the, this model faced a contradiction. It had to ensure a minimum amount of electricity within the grid and it needed to promote green energy. So the solution proposed was twofold. They had to create another market for permissions to emit greenhouse gases, so there would be penalties that you had to pay if you were emitting greenhouse gases, so that would try to entice groups to go for greener power. And the other part of this was introduced marginal cost pricing, which meant that the wholesale price of every kilowatt should equal the costliest kilowatt. So if you've got multiple people providing money into the grid, you might have a wind farm that's essentially able to supply $20 per megawatt and you might have some other solar farm able to provide it at 40, but you might have some gas turbine that's providing it at 120, then everybody gets paid 120. And that was the way they set it up to make sure that there would be enough supply. In theory, the more industry that relied on fuels like brown coal, the larger they would have to pay for their sort of emission permits which would drive up their price and would encourage people to switch to renewables. And this marginal cross-pricing was intended to ensure that uh, there would be a minimum level of electricity supply and the low-cost guys would not undercut the high-cost guys. Instead, they would just make a super profit on it and that would encourage people to go for the low-cost renewable power supply because they'd be making these super profits. So. To see what the regulators had in mind, consider a hydroelectric power station and a coal-fired one. The fixed cost of building the hydroelectric station is large, but the marginal cost is zero. Once the water turns its turbine, the next kilowatt costs nothing. In contrast, the coal-fired power station is cheap to build or cheaper to build, but there's a marginal cost reflecting the fixed amount of coal that you need to burn per kilowatt. By fixing the price of every kilowatt produced in the hydroelectric situation to be no less than the marginal cost 
of using brown coal, they wanted to reward the hydroelectric company with a fat profit to encourage them to keep doing it and for people to build more renewables. Meanwhile, coal-fired guys would be operating at almost zero profits, so they'd be wanting to sort of get out of the market. But the reality was less forgiving for this theory. As the pandemic wreaked or wreaked havoc on global supply chains, the price of natural gas rose and uh, before trebling after Russia invaded Ukraine, suddenly the most polluting fuel, brown coal, was not the most expensive. So the most expensive was natural gas, and people who were burning coal would be getting the price from burning the expensive natural gas. So they were making good money. Keep burning coal. Marginal cost pricing helped power companies extract huge rents from outraged retail consumers who realised they were paying much more than the average cost of electricity. So, and the public, seeing no benefits from these wind farms, were thinking, what the heck have we got these wind farms for? So the rising cost in natural prices exposed problems where you try and simulate a market, where you try and artificially create one. So it's, he says, it's time to wind down simulated electricity markets. What we need instead are public energy networks in which electricity prices represent average costs plus a small markup. So when you look at the situation in Europe and the rising cost of electricity, it's not just that the price of gas went up because of Russia and all the rest of it. It's just that also these cheaper forms of energy, the hydroelectric and the brown coal, were actually able to charge that higher price as well because of the way that the market was structured. So it wasn't just one segment of the market that got expensive. The whole market shot up, yep. irrespective. Where did the money go? To large corporations who happened to own. Imagine, Joe, if you owned a hydroelectric power generator, it's costing nothing having bought it to, to, to generate electricity and you're able to recoup at the price of super expensive natural gas now. So this is the problem with selling off public infrastructure. Yeah, and um, what you could do actually is take those profits and use them to pay to insulate houses and work basically to make your electricity use much more efficient. Yeah. S single government operating it, you could be just charging people the average cost of the electricity and meanwhile you could be directing the market into the types of production that you want it to do. These artificial mechanisms have failed. Well, the, the whole whinge about the carbon tax was it's going to make our electricity use more expensive and therefore we're going to pay more on the power bill. But the whole mm. point was to make us use less electricity. Yes. The point was to make it worthwhile to insulate your house rather than just turn on the air conditioner every day. Yeah. It seems to, uh, there, there just is this lack of, hey, maybe we should use less electricity. How do we do that? Mm. I mean, uh, if you remember the whole, the millennium drought, there was a big push by the Queensland government on water reduction. Mm. And so they said, right, we'll pay for a, uh, a plumber to come out for free. Yes. And 
He will replace the gaskets on your leaking taps. And he will... Put a shower rose in that uses yeah. uh, less water. Yep. 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 And there was a thing about they'd install a power meter that would measure your power and swap over a bunch of your light bulbs for compact fluorescence. Yes. Yep. But we need to be looking at that more and more about... Consumption. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cheap loans to replace shitty windows with decent windows that actually keep a bit of the heat out or to put good insulation in your roof. I mean, that was the pink bat scheme, but... Yeah. I don't know how effective that was, but we need to look more at how do we reduce the average energies. Mm. Yeah. And there was also talk about the problem with rooftop solar, which mm-hmm. is getting more and more, is the infrastructure is not designed to handle the generation of electricity in residential areas mm. and, and moving it to, you know, during the day you're generating it in residential areas and shipping it to industrial areas. Mm. And the infrastructure is not designed for that. Mm. And so there's discussion about neighborhood level batteries Mm. where the rooftop solar charges it during the day. And then at night, the local area uses the battery that they've charged during the day. Mm. And that means that you don't need as large cables going into or out of an area. And it makes sense to decentralize these things as Mm. well. So when there is a disaster, it's limited. You don't have all your eggs in one basket. Mm. I'm still getting my head around Paul Waper in Canberra, getting 56 cents per kilowatt or whatever, I'm, even I'm, for the electricity he uses. That was just amazing. Yeah. yeah you have I to think, put it into the grid, even if he just used it himself. Incredible. Yeah. So it's not, I think if you use it, because I had a friend who was on a similar school, uh, scheme up mm. here, it was you, you paid 50 cents for generating it, and then you bought it back from the power company. Mm. So you paid them, sorry, they paid you 50 cents, and then you bought it back from them at whatever your standard meter rate was. Yeah, I don't think so. You were getting the that. difference. I think the Canberra deal was even better than that. Okay. The way Paul was describing it. Yeah, he was literally um, using it and being paid, even though he was the one using it. Yes. Yeah, it made sense mm. to. I think use electricity during the evenings on the on the old scheme, mm. and now it makes sense to use electricity because basically, if you're using the electricity you're generating during the daytime, they're going to pay you less for that, so you're paying less per electricity yep. than if you're buying it from the grid in the evening. Anyway, that was last week with Paul. Now in Australia, oh, in just going back to that, I'm going to get to a book by a guy called Vaclav. Small, I think his name is, have been recommended to me. Essentially, it's saying that we consume way too much in terms of electricity, but also just things like fertiliser that is needed for growing the crops that feed the world relies on on fossil fuel to generate the fertiliser. Oh, I was going to say there's a there's a World Earth Day or something, mm. which is basically the day in the year where we've used up enough resources that we, so a year's worth of resources for, for it to remain renewable. So we're not oh, depleting yes. the Earth's energy. Or the, what day of the year is that? I think it's sometime around May or June currently. Yeah. 
it is I, we've used up a, a year's worth of yep. resources. Yeah. So even if we build this infrastructure of renewables, we're still going to be faced with having to reduce consumption. And so things like the amount of energy that goes into producing fertiliser, which is producing crops, which we're then feeding into animals and then eating the animals, it's inefficient where we should just be eating the crop rather than running it through an animal and having their protein and just the amount of energy that's required for steel and concrete and all that sort of stuff. So I'll get to that book, but I think consumption is going to be a big issue. There's a big push towards wooden skyscrapers now. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm seeing, I, I saw something about how they're getting bigger and bigger skyscrapers. They're getting yeah. the strength out of um, what they call manufactured wood. Mm. So where they're building up laminates of multiple layers, much like plywood. Yep. And it's, it's much, much stronger than natural wood because it doesn't have the defects. Yeah. The, the there's, one, there's one down near the exhibition, down there at Bowen Hills. Oh, okay. A mate of mine, oh, acquaintance, lives in it or lives beside it. It's sort of about eight stories high, I think. Okay. And the reason they made it of wood was because it's over the tunnel and they needed the weight to be reduced in order to build on top of one of the tunnels that was sort of not that deep in that vicinity. So that's why they used a wooden Interesting. skyscraper there. Now, back to Australia and bringing in this electricity idea eventually. And let's talk about Paul Keating and Labor. So many people think of privatisation as a policy of conservative parties in Australia. However, it was Paul Keating's Labor that initiated a gigantic fire sale of public assets. In the 1990s, Paul Keating's Labor government kicked off one of the most aggressive waves of privatisation seen in the developed world. The resulting fire sale transferred a vast amount of public wealth to the private sector. Keating's sale of Qantas and the Commonwealth Bank are the two most notorious examples, but the damage was deeper and wider than people realise. He made sweeping reforms that laid the groundwork for two decades of privatisation and outsourcing. According to this article, which is from Jacobin magazine, that'll tell you how it's a lefty it's a very, very lefty, it's so left that it's criticising Paul Keating. There you go. It says, Keating's neoliberalisation of the Australian economy paved the way for his liberal successor, John Howard, who went on to accelerate the transformation that Keating started. And we can now draw up a damning balance sheet of the whole experiment. So Hawke abolished tariffs, floated the dollar, introduced the prices and income accord. That drastically undermined the ability of trade unions to organise. These reforms laid the basis for Labor's privatisation wave. There was a national competition policy review known as the Hilmer Committee and it inspired a national competition policy and it was all about creating competitive markets in Australian society. And in 95, 1995, Keating's federal government endorsed every recommendation of that Hilmer report. So every state and government... Every state and territory government followed suit and soon governments across the nation were aggressively enforcing a competitive market logic in crucial sectors like electricity, gas, aviation, finance, transport and communications. 
crucially, it imposed competitive neutrality on public enterprises. So previously, publicly owned services and institutions had benefited from advantageous frameworks. They were able to borrow money at cheaper government rate, they were exempt from tax, and they weren't required to turn a profit. So competitive neutrality changed all this. It insisted that governments had to strip public companies of these advantages, forcing them to function like private corporations and compete. John Howard took this to its logical conclusion by initiating the sale of Telstra and then Julie Gillard sold the last of Telstra. Proponents of neoliberalism have argued that competitive markets deliver services cheaper and more efficiently, but the public know that this to be a lie and since privatisations uh, since privatisation, levels of productivity and efficiency in the electricity system have declined, while the costs have ballooned. And there was a report from the Australia Institute. And what it found was real output per employees in the electricity sector has fallen by 37%. Under private ownership, the number of managers employed by electricity providers has doubled the number of sales staff has quadrupled. But over the same period, the number of actual electrical tradespeople has only grown by 21%. So people actually do stuff <laughs> directly related but, to supplying electricity. But, but it's more efficient, so they got rid of half of them. <laughs> yeah. They only grew by 21%. The sales staff quadrupled and the management doubled. So incredibly... The electricity sector now spends more on finance and banking than it does on the fuel that powers its generators. Uh, it's just the takeover of our economy by the um, finance insurance sector. Anyway, uh, it goes on. In '95, there were a couple of economists released an, anal an, an analysis showing that Australia's publicly owned pharmaceutical company, the Commonwealth Serum laboratories, CSL, the privatisation of that cost taxpayers, this is in 1995, $607 million. Partly because the Australian government now had to buy services from the newly privatised CSL and partly because of loss of revenue and assets. The fiscal impact of the sale is the same as if the government were to borrow $607 million commit itself to paying interest on that sum for it and simply dissipate the funds. So it was disastrous for the public. CSL is now the most valuable corporation listed on Australia's stock exchange with a market capitalisation of $140 billion. And in '95 we sold it for $607 million. Uh, Actually, yeah, no. Would it be so successful had we not sold it? Yes, indeed. Indeed, that's the question. Actually, it says here in 93, Keating sold it for $299 million, roughly half a billion in today's money. So it's worth 140, and Keating sold it for half a billion in today's money. And they underestimated the true cost of it because the 
Commonwealth government just signed a deal that involves paying CSL $1 billion to purchase medical products the company had developed when it was owned by the government. Yeah. Okay. Today, the largest shareholders of Telstra, Qantas, CSL and the Commonwealth Bank are multinational hedge funds and investment banks. Have you heard of BlackRock? Yeah. Yeah. BlackRock and the Vanguard Group. Going to do something on BlackRock in the weeks to come. Huge company. So what it says here is essential services like electricity or telecommunications were formerly provided at cost, but now consumers must subsidise private profit margins and the increased running costs associated with the bloated corporate structure. Between 96 and 2016, so a 20-year period, electricity prices increased by 183%, three times more than the rate of inflation. That's what uh, competition gets you. Mm -hmm. It's better for the consumer, though. The few remaining publicly owned electricity suppliers have also hiked their prices because they have to follow the principles of competition. And why wasn't there objection to this privatisation and an internal Labor Party review after the loss to Howard identified that this privatisation was one of the main reasons amongst the disillusionment among Labor's working-class voters. And so Keating did it, and it was one of the major reasons why he lost. Working-class voters remain deeply opposed to the sale of public assets. And as an example, Queensland's a clear-cut example. In 2012, Queensland Labor dropped from 51 seats to just seven after Anna Bly pushed through a deeply unpopular program of privatising major ports, roads and rail. So both parties have been pushing through the sale of assets. Ordinary people object. The result of all this extra competition is we're all paying more money. So these things are structural, the way they've been designed to create artificial markets that have provided sweet deals for the corporations involved. It's not just all about Russia and a sudden shortage of gas. It's a case where that particular event is just amplified because of these crazy pricing mechanisms that are inbuilt. And so it's it's more to it than just blame Putin. It's actually blame Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and neoliberalism well, for um, how this has accelerated a, what could have been a much smaller problem. Milton? Is it Milton School of Economics? Milton Chicago, Free. anyway. Yeah, 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 the Chicago boys. Yep, yep, yep. An architect of all that. So... Ah, is that not a sad and depressing tale? And, yeah, I mean, I was knocking around the time, but you're busy, you're raising kids. I didn't, I wasn't paying attention to these things. It's like, oh, must be good. You don't, you're not taught to think about the future. I don't know. Did you look at it askance at the time, Joe? Or do you think I've got to get some of this? I'm going to, I'm going to buy some of these Telstra shares because they're too cheap. I I was a teenager and. Dad bought shares in British Gas in my name, and then you know, basically, I think we sold them off the next day because we got on the IPO, yeah, and, and made a couple of hundred quid on it. 
some some pommy friends of ours came out to Australia just like the UK was doing it before us and they had seen these privatisations happening over there and what would happen is the government would would sell this stuff off cheap mm-hmm. because A, they were convinced by the brokers and B, it would look good that it was all sold. It was seen as a success if you managed to sell off all the shares. And they were well oversubscribed and people were making huge profits. Exactly. And and everyone was profiting in the sales. Yes. So when all of our, when these uh, Pommy friends come to Australia, as Australia started doing this sort of stuff, they were into every one of them. They were buying them up and and subscribing to these things because it was just money for nothing. These things were being just sold too cheap. And you know, future generations are going to look back at some of this stuff and, and just be really angry. It was interesting because Jersey Telecom was small, government-owned, mm-hmm. and my former boss got involved with draft, drafting the legislation when it was due to be um, privatised. And I had a long chat with him about and he was talking about the fact that the richest customers were effectively subsidizing the poorest customers right to the tune of i think he was saying 50 pounds a month previously so, previously so, yes. so the banks yes. the banks we were making huge profits there was a single bank which was 50 percent of our revenue one bank because it was offshore finance and and effectively it was subscribe it was subsidizing every single home user 50 pounds and was saying when you deregulate, people will come in and, and pick up the cream and leave the crap. Yep. And, and he yep. says there's two ways of doing it. Either you force the companies to, for every one premium customer, they have to take whatever it is, five home users. Yep. Or you tax them. Yep. And you say for every one of these, you have to pay the incumbent or whoever's looking after the, the average customer. To, to pay the difference. And I think that's what's happened mm-hmm. with Telstra is mm-hmm. the Bush customers, Telstra is subsidized by, because most of the other yes. um, operators only operate in the regional cities, uh, yeah. sorry, in the, the capital cities or in the major cities. Yeah. Because infrastructure is relatively cheap and you get good mm-hmm. profits. Whereas yeah. you talk out, out of the Bush, it, it, huge investments to get a phone line out there. Yeah. And you, what's the phone company that starts with a V, I think? Um, Virgin? Oh, no, the other one. I think it's... You've, you've, the main ones are Telstra, Optus, and... Uh, oh, Vodafone. Vo- Vodafone. Yeah. So they can just put up a few towers and just pick and choose which ones they're mm-hmm. going to lease in the, in the most profitable areas and leave the regions to somebody else. There are certain things that should just remain in public hands. And okay. Interestingly just, enough, that's what happened in New Zealand. Mm, yes, so they maintained the telco was, ownership. Yeah. Well, the telco was split into two. So there was mm. retail and then there was infrastructure. Mm. And infrastructure has remained, uh, I don't know if it's, if it's government owned, but certainly all they do is effectively what MBN Co is supposed to be doing. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's government owned. They retained ownership of it. Yeah. And the other, yeah, even with MBN Co, the fact we said it had to turn a profit has just made it unfeasible. Yeah. The other part in one of these articles I skipped over as well was just in this Keating thing where they started introducing consultants as well. And so the amount of money that is now spent on 
consultants rather than employing people directly is just criminal. So I had another friend who was involved in IT in the police service and, you know, they just had lost all of their capacity in-house to do IT and had to pay outrageous sums for the outsiders because they'd completely lost all expertise. The banks are insourcing now. They've discovered that outsourcing is a, a false economy. There we go. Yeah. There we go. Well, dear listener, I'm going to, we're up to an hour and a half. That's plenty of time. I hope you enjoyed that explanation of uh, electricity markets in Europe and Australia and the craziness of privatising these public assets. And we just let it happen to our eternal shame and future generations will rightly criticise us. Hopefully we can get something right in the meantime so that they will forgive us a little bit. So there we go. All right, dear listener, hope you enjoyed it. In the chat room, you've been going well. Thanks for that. Talk to you next week will be part B of the discussion with Paul Waper, which was about cultural Marxism, which then the following week I can follow up with a bit of postmodernism, getting all our terminology correct. So there we go. All right, guys, thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next time. See you in Sydney Friday week if you're going to join and you're a patron. Bye for now. Bye-bye. And it's a good night from him. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said and... When you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you... Go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth... More than that, less than that, whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.